0: So today we're talking about forgiveness, as you can see, and uh, this is uh, really one of my favorite things to talk about uh, because uh, it just—it's always an opportunity to remember how God has forgiven me, and uh, man, that's something that we should never get over, and um, and also because of how often this is misunderstood. I mean, uh, I know hardly anyone that I've counseled with who had a good, robust understanding of forgiveness. It's not that it's always wrong or you know contrary to truth, but some, uh, at best, is usually inadequate. And uh, you know, the first paragraph there just kind of points out how surprising it is that forgiveness is often misunderstood because. Uh, Forgiveness is one of the key things that defines or marks our salvation, right? You can't be saved without forgiveness. It's it's one of the most significant aspects of how God has treated us. Uh, And um, again, it's not that we misunderstand it so much as we, I think, don't understand it as fully as we can or should. Uh, And then beyond that, we don't connect the dots from what he's done for us. In salvation and what he calls us to with others in terms of our forgiveness of others. So, so this is just a really important uh, lesson, and I hope it will be rich uh, for you. Perhaps just a reminder. Perhaps enlightening in, in some ways. Uh, but uh, this is this is big. This is really big. So, let's pray and uh, we'll dive in. So, first, just want to start out with some uh, common misunderstandings of forgiveness. Uh, as I've talked to people, uh, you know, certainly books out there even, convey uh, a wrong idea. And so one of the reasons people have a hard time forgiving those that have sinned against them is because they're thinking wrongly about what forgiveness is to begin with. So they're thinking, I'm supposed to do something that they're not actually supposed to do. <laughs> and uh, especially when you, know, you think through what, what it is that... That sometimes people think, and maybe you know, some of these are, are have been in your mind. Uh, I can understand why it would be hard to forgive. But the first one, you know, very common, the idea of forgiveness is just sweeping things under the rug. Like, hey, I forgive you, you forgive me. Let's just sweep this under the rug. Let's not talk about it. <laughs> you know, it's it's not the same as overlooking sin. Overlooking sin acknowledges sin for what it is. Perhaps even some way in the heart and the mind deals with it as we'll talk about toward the end of this lesson there's an an attitude of forgiveness if you will uh just in your own heart and mind uh but sweeping it under under the rug is not going to deal with it not going to talk about it we're just going to pretend like this never happened right and so when someone is thinking about that's what i'm supposed to do then it's like no what they've what this person has done to me is too significant to sweep under the rug and and so that would naturally be hard to to do Uh, or the forgive and forget you know this idea that you just need to forget about what they did uh, not think about it and you know let go Um, and of course we know we don't have a delete button you know i wish god had given us like three delete buttons for our life or something you know just forget that memory
1: Um,
0: but we don't have that we don't have the ability to forget and so uh, god doesn't call us to forget he we there's no command to forget, uh, and, and so that's not a biblical idea. Uh, forgiveness often entails for people minimizing the offense, uh, acting as though it's not a big deal. Uh, I remember uh, an extended family member who had grown up with a, uh, not an abusive dad in, in the worst sense, but just a, a bad dad, let's just say that. And, you know, sinned against the family, sinned against the son in a variety of ways. And so there was a relationship there, but not much of one, right? So it wasn't like totally broken, totally terrible, but it just wasn't good. And I remember him as as a young believer, my extended family member, as a young believer thinking, I can't forgive my dad because that would basically be saying what you did is not a big deal. It would be minimizing the offense. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness does not minimize someone's offense. In some ways it does the opposite. So that's not what we mean. Uh, Or uh, along the same lines, it's letting the person off the hook. If I forgive them, then that means there are no consequences for their sin. Uh, And that's not true either. Kind of on a different in a different category of of things, sometimes people will say, you need to forgive yourself. Uh, You need to, you know, get over your guilt and shame by forgiving yourself, and that is not a biblical principle. That's not a biblical concept. Uh, First and foremost, as we'll see, sin is against God. God is the judge, and he is the one who must judicially forgive, and when we sin, uh, in addition to sinning against God, we sin often towards one another, and so forgiveness is a relational uh, action, not a personal how I think about my own sin. When we sin, we confess and repent of our sin, and God forgives us, and hopefully others forgive us too. We don't forgive ourselves, right? So forgiving ourselves is not a biblical concept. That's not how we deal with guilt or with shame. We deal with guilt and shame by confession and forgiveness and receiving and embracing the forgiveness that God gives us. And then the worst of all is forgiving God. Some might say you need to forgive God because of how your loved one died or because of what happened to you. Uh, Friends, that is blasphemy because forgiving God implies explicitly really that God has done something wrong, that God messed up. God did you wrong and so you need to forgive him and that's blasphemy. God doesn't do anything wrong. He doesn't wrong us. We always get better than what we deserve. Even the worst things that can happen to us are better than what we deserve. And so we ought never to think that we need to forgive God. All right, so th- those are just some common ways that we are often hearing, uh, perhaps reading uh, about forgiveness that uh, are just uh, far, far from what scripture would have us to think. So what? what is Forgiveness. Well, uh, it says in the notes last week, remember, the last couple of weeks were out of order. So, two weeks ago when Christopher taught, um, haven't gotten to the end, listening to the end of that uh, teaching that he did, but uh, hopefully he covered forgiveness. And one of the points that was uh, made in the notes, at least, is that the forgiveness that we offer others is modeled after the forgiveness that God has. Uh, given us, and so that means that there can be no real understanding of what it means for us to forgive until we have understood what it means that God forgives us. Uh, if you were to do some anthropological study and scour the world and try and figure out what is forgiveness, what is forgiveness? You know, look in your at the cultures, look at creation, and see what is forgiveness in the world. Nothing you get nothing. <laughs> there is zero data in creation about what forgiveness is apart from God. And so we have to really do some good biblical thinking about how God has forgiven us to understand it truly. To do that, we have to start with the reality that forgiveness involves sin and guilt. Sin and guilt. Uh, for... With that in mind, forgiveness is the undeserved releasing of guilt to someone who has sinned against God and toward you. Sin or forgiveness is the undeserved releasing of guilt to someone who has sinned against God and toward us. One of the things that we uh, do sometimes when we are sinned against, is we put that person in a jail cell of our mind, and we kind of lock them in, and we say you're going to be in that jail cell until you, you know, show that you are worthy of being released. You know, good behavior program. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to keep you there, and I'm going to treat you according to your sins. I'm going to relate with you in light of your sin again until you prove to me that you're sorry and that you're never going to do that again or, you know, whatever. Forgiveness is opening the prison door and removing them from that jail cell of our mind so that we no longer relate to them as though they are primarily a sinner against us. Uh, Or maybe another way to think about it is, you know, if you have two people facing each other, Sin is like a, a wall between you that you're interacting with each other in the ba- on, on the basis that there's this barrier. There's this wall between you. And maybe you can hear each other. Maybe you can even see each other if it's you know, visible enough. But, but there's something between you. And so you can't have full relationship. And, and on your part, because you've been sinned against, you've constructed that wall and you're keeping that wall. Forgiveness is tearing down that wall. And say, I'm no longer going to relate to you in light of your sin. Just another illustration. Uh, forgiveness is uh, what we do when someone sins against us. And let's just say you, you have glasses. And say you put on yellow glasses, right? The yellow lenses. And because of their sin against you, now you see them through that yellow lens. So they're colored according to to how you perceive them from your perspective. Forgiveness is replacing your glasses or taking them off, whatever, so that you see them clearly as they really are in their fullness, not just from the perspective of of the sin. So these are all just different ways to say you're releasing the guilt of their sin relationally so that you do not interact with them on the basis of their sin. It's important to remember that only God can forgive judicially. Remember, He is the Judge of the universe, uh, and so only He can release someone from the guilt, or the, I should say, the punishment of their sins before Him. All sin is is against God. Right? God is the Lawgiver. God is the Creator. He's the one who's given us His standards of righteousness. Uh, and so, anytime someone violates that, even if it's toward you, it's because they violated His law. Just like if somebody. You know, uh, commits a crime against the state toward you. You know, they steal something from you, or you know, they break into your house or harm you physically. Whatever. Uh, yeah, they're doing that toward you, but they're violating the law of the state, and so only the state can release them from that. Um, they have to deal with the state, uh, not so much with you, in, in that sense, judicial sense. And so it's the same with God; that only God can release us from the death penalty of sin. But we can forgive each other relationally, right? And we we can remove that barrier that exists between us and others as the consequence of sin. So, what is guilt then? Uh, Guilt is not a feeling, though that's how we often use it. Uh, Guilt is not a feeling. It's not something that is an emotion and, uh, and, you know, you, you feel guilty. What we call the feeling of guilt is really sorrow. That's the biblical word for it in 2 Corinthians 7. Uh, when we feel a certain way about our sin, uh, the the better term is sorrow. Guilt itself is a status. And so sometimes we can confuse things in our mind between the emotion of, of guilt, which is sorrow, or the status of guilt. And we understand that. We have that same dynamic, in, again, in our justice system that when the judge or the jury hands down the verdict, they say either guilty or not guilty, right? And that's a status. It doesn't It's not a feeling. It's not, hey, we feel this way about you or you feel this way about yourself. It's This is either what you are or what you're not. So gu- guilt is a status. And so you can either be innocent, which means you haven't done anything wrong, or you could be righteous, which means you've done everything right. You've perfectly adhered to God's standard which is what Christ did, or you can be guilty, which means you have violated God's standard. Those are the three statuses, if you will, that someone can have. The only innocent people that have ever existed have been Adam and Eve until the fall, where they, uh, they had one command, and they, they didn't violate that command to eat of the tree until they did. <laughs> so they were innocent for a period of time, and then all of a sudden they were guilty because they had violated God's command, and all of us are born guilty of sin uh, by virtue of that uh, transfer of sin from Adam and Eve. And then, of course, very quickly in life, we become guilty of our own sin as well. And then Christ alone is righteous. He not only has never done anything wrong, never did anything wrong, but he did everything right. He completely fulfilled the law of God. And so... Uh, When we're talking about guilt and releasing someone's status of guilt, uh, we're saying we no longer will treat you as if you're guilty. It's not that we're saying you're not guilty when you really are. That's for God to deal with. And as believers, we are not guilty on the basis that we have the righteousness of Christ before God, right? But in terms of our relationship with, uh, with others we are saying we're releasing you from the from the penalty of your sin we're releasing you from guilt in terms of the penalty all right so with that in mind forgiveness is not the absence of justice this is huge forgiveness is not the absence of justice so when we say i forgive you we're not saying you didn't do anything wrong there are no consequences you know it doesn't matter none of those things Justice is accomplished by God. And if the person is an unbeliever, then they will receive the due penalty for their sin against you in the end. Uh, If the person is a believer, then their penalty, their guilt, has been paid for by Christ on the cross. And same with yours, by the way. So, Either they paid for their own sin or Christ paid for their sin. And so justice has taken place or will take place depending on that person standing before God. So when God forgives and thus when we forgive, justice is not thwarted. Justice is accomplished in one of two ways. God will either execute justice by a sinner pouring out his wrath on them for eternity in hell or he will execute... Uh, or he will have executed justice for a sinner by pouring out his wrath on Christ. So you could say it this way, some receive justice, some receive grace, but no one receives injustice. Again, this is critically important. I remember some years ago uh, ministering with to a woman alongside another woman, uh, and this woman we were ministering to um, had grown up, She was the daughter of a pimp and a prostitute. She had grown up in the adult entertainment industry, like literally grown up. As a child, she was in and around that milieu, and she literally said, "I've never known a man who didn't sexually assault me." Uh, Unbelievable uh, wickedness that had been perpetrated on her throughout her whole life. Um, and so as we're you know she's not a believer as we're just trying to uh, be compassionate toward her and show the love of Christ uh, and minister to her, uh, she connected the dots in what we were saying about the gospel and, and said, do you mean that if my dad, who is still alive, if my dad believed in Christ, that he would be forgiven of everything he's done for me? Exactly what we're saying. And I said to her, and I'm so thankful because if he can't be forgiven, then I can't be forgiven. We have to come to grips with this reality that God, for the believer, has poured out the full extent of his wrath on the cross. And so there's never injustice when we forgive. So, with that in mind, let's talk about the four facets of God's forgiveness of us and therefore how we are to forgive one another. Four ways that scripture tells us God forgives us. First, when God forgives, he does not remember our sins. He does not remember our sins. Isaiah 43:25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sin, and I will not remember your sins. Jeremiah 31, uh, 34, this is the uh, new covenant. It says along the same lines, They will not teach again each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will And their sin I will remember no more. You have a quote there from the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, Nidot as it's called. It says, The word remember translates zakar. The root of its derivatives have crucial roles in the Old Testament. On the human level, the words embrace reflection, especially on what is in the past. Such reflection may lead to re- regret or relief, or more actively, appreciation and commitment. And then this uh, is helpful. God's remembering has to do with his attention and intervention, whether in grace or in judgment. Okay? So the word remember is not a passive word that means forget, like God is saying to us, I'm going to forgive and forget your sin. No, when he says, I will not remember your sin, he says, I will not actively think about your sin and therefore engage in relationship with you in light of your sin. So he's saying, when I I look at you, I'm not going to think of you and your sin being together. I'm removing your sin from you so that I only deal with you and have a relationship with you. Your sin has no... No bearing on our relationship anymore. I'm not thinking about your sin. I'm not remembering your sin. I'm not reliving your sin. I'm not doing any of that. Your sin, as far as I'm concerned, is a non-issue. So he does not remember. He does not actively think about our sin anymore. And so, again, when we think about our own sin and we are battling with guilt or shame or sorrow over our sin, however you want to put it. And we're wondering, Man, is is God punishing me? Is God you know does God hate me? Is God upset at me? Well if you're a believer, the answer is absolutely not. Because he has removed your sin from you. He does not think about your sin at all. When he looks at you, he's not thinking about what you did five minutes ago or five years ago. He's just looking at you as his beloved child without reference to your sin. He does not remember our sin. All right, second way that God forgives us is that he does not remind us of our sins and use them against us. This is so, so helpful. Psalm 103, verse 10 and on, he says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is a, just a reminder that, again, God has removed our sin from us. He's, he's cast them away. And so what that means is he will not bring them up to us. So not only will he not dwell on them himself, you could say not only does he not bring it up to himself, he also won't bring our sin, your sin, up to you uh, to use it against you. Uh, it is the Holy Spirit's work to convict us of sin, but that's uh, in order to bring us to the place of confession and repentance. But once we've sought forgiveness from the Lord and we've restored that relationship with Him, which we'll get to kind of what that means later. But uh, once that's done, then it's over. He will not bring up your sin. So when when you are thinking about your sin. Uh, and and you're feeling condemned for your sin, you can know for certain that that is not God reminding you of your sin. God is not the one who's saying, I can't believe what you did. I can't believe you would do such a thing. How could you do that? You know the truth. You know you're not supposed to. God is not the one in your head saying those things. Uh, We we certainly say those things to ourselves. It's the work of the devil to accuse the brethren. uh, But God doesn't do that. This picture here of uh him casting our sin as far as the east is from the west. The first time I taught this class in, in twenty nineteen, uh Ann Kane uh was in the class and uh you know, if you know ann Kane, she always has really helpful insights on things. And uh, she said, Do you know why it says from the east and from the west and not from the north to the south? And I'm like, Anne, I have no idea. <laughs> I've never thought about that in my life. <laughs> and she said, the reason is because if, if he cast it from the north to the south, when you go north, you're going to get to a point where you start going south. And if you go south, you're going to get to the point where you start going north. Theoretically, right? Uh, but when you when you go east... From your direction, whatever. When you go east, you're never going to go west. You're just going to go east forever. The same thing with west. You're you're going to go there forever. So when he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west, he's casting it in a direction well where he will never come back to meet us. Right? It's never going to come back around to us. It's gonna. It's never going to come back around to meet us. So that's that's as far uh, as he has cast our sin. We're about Colossians too. Just another. Very powerful picture. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is a a picture of how in ancient times, just like today, uh, when you took a debt out uh, uh, from someone... Uh, there would be a document that would be written which would uh, define the terms of the loan. You know, it'd stipulate what is the loan, how much is it, uh, what are the terms of repayment, uh, what are the consequences of non-payment, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, who's the lender, who's the borrower, who are the witnesses, you know, all of the normal things, all the key things that we think of in, in, in our documents today. When you take out a loan, they had the same stuff back then, obviously. And Probably not so much lawyer speech. Uh, but, and so that's that's the situation that we are in with God, right? Our sin had had made us indebted to God in this picture. And so there's this document that identifies our sin, the penalty of our sin, uh, because of our debt toward God. And the problem is not just that we have a debt toward God, but that we are in default. Uh, our Our payment is overdue. And... Therefore, the the document itself is hanging over us as a constant reminder. Hey, your debt is overdue. Now the consequences are about to come against you. There's hostility, as it says, which was hostile to us. So, you know, you picture that you're sitting in your house. You know, you haven't been able to pay your mortgage. And people are knocking at the door. Hey, you know, we're here to take possession of your house. And the phone is ringing uh, off the hook. You know, the debt collectors are calling. And you're just cowering in the corner like, please, no, go away. I can't pay. Don't take the house from me. That's the situation that we are in with our sin with God. And what God did in Christ, it's as if, just picturing the the situation, it's as if he took that document and he just erased it. And it became a, a pure white sheet as if it never happened. That's what he means by saying having canceled out the debt. the idea of canceling is is kind of an erasing of the debt. Uh, then there's kind of a a mixed metaphor which, which he says at the end. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So maybe instead of uh, of wiping it away so that you know it's not it's not there anymore, uh, he took that certificate and above the head of Christ, you know there was the. The plaque that said "This is Jesus, King of the Jews." It's as if Jesus, or as as if the Father took your certificate and stuck it there, much like a merchant would stick a receipt, you know, on a on a pin that that was paid. And so, all of the the consequences, all of the hostility of that uh, certificate of debt are gone, and you are no longer in debt. Now, that, this passage doesn't say it, but we can go on further and say, not only are you not in debt, but now you have the riches of Christ in your account, right? Because of justification. So all this to say, when God forgives us, he doesn't remind us of our debt. It's, it's wiped clean. It's gone. There are no consequences. He, he is not knocking out the door. The phone stops, and you own your house free and clear. God does not remind us of our sin and use it against us. A third way that God forgives us is he does not receive accusations from others. He does not receive accusations from others. Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's a rhetorical question. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. Meaning when you have God and you have Christ on your team, on your, what's the right word for that? On your uh, um, defense team or whatever, uh, no one can say anything against you. You have the the star lawyers. right? In fact, when you think about the father, uh, he's not pictured as a lawyer, he's pictured as the judge. And Christ as your uh, interceding lawyer. So when you got the judge on your side <laughs> and you got the best defense attorney in the world on your side, there is nothing that anyone can say against you, uh, and there's nothing that anyone can do to convince the Father and the Son to turn against you. Or consider Revelation 12:10 on the next page. Uh, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, "Now the, uh, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come." For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. So, this picture is uh, our adversary, the devil, the evil one, uh, Satan himself, standing before God, if you will, in the courtroom of heaven, constantly bringing accusations against God's elect, constantly reminding God of your sin and my sin. And it's as if God continually says, I object, I object. I object. I paid for that sin. That's been dealt with. This is not relevant. You know, relevance, your honor. (laughs) Satan gets nowhere because God does not listen at all to the accusations of the evil. one. You know, when when you sin against someone and uh, they're praying to God about your sin and let's say you've repented and and, uh, God's forgiving you of, of your sin. Um, When others pray to God about your sin as if God is saying, I'm not listening to that prayer. (laughs) I've forgiven them for that sin. Uh, God does not listen to the accusations of others. And we could say, just as an obvious corollary to that, God does not talk to others about our sin. Right? He he certainly doesn't spread uh, that information to others. All right, the fourth way that God forgives us is He removes the barrier that our sin created in our relationship with Him. Romans 5.10, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So we were enemies, there was a relational barrier between us and Him, but He has reconciled us. He has, he has drawn us back to Himself. Ephesians two, thirteen. But now in Christ Jesus, you who uh, formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So there's kind of two, two pictures here. Uh, in Ephesians 2, the, the broader context, he's talking about the, the union that God has accomplished between Jews and Gentiles, that he's brought them into one people of God. And so on the one hand, the Jews were near to God because they were his chosen people. He had given them the, the covenant and the promises. And so in, in that sense, they were near to God, whereas the Gentiles were far from God, right? Not only were they enemies of God in their heart, but they hated God. They, had, they didn't have the law of God. They wanted, they worshiped false God, you know, all that kind of stuff. So one reconciliation is that God brought us Gentiles near to himself and the dividing wall that separated Jews and Gentiles has been torn down so that now there is one people of God, not, not two people of God. And so there's been a, a, a removal of the barrier that our sin created because he's brought us near. There's no geographical gap. There's no a physical barrier between us and God. It's all been taken away, so we are completely reconciled. Colossians 1, 21, 22 says, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his flesh, in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So this again is that idea of separation, that we were alienated from God. We were far from him. We were outside of his kingdom. And more than that, we were hostile in our mind. We Uh, hated God. We were his enemies. We wanted nothing to do with God. And we manifested that by the way in which we live. That's what he means by engaged in evil deeds. But it says he's reconciled us so he's brought us near. And when he says in order to present you holy and blameless, uh, he's referring to the fact that he's changed our mind. He's sanctified us so that we now love him. So he's taken everything out of the way that once uh, divided us away uh, from from him. So that when God forgives us, there is no relational barrier between us and him. So God does not dwell on our sin. He does not remember it. He doesn't doesn't actively think about it. Uh, He doesn't bring it up to us and use it against us. He doesn't listen to the accusations of others, and he certainly doesn't talk to others about it. And He has removed the barrier that our sin created. So, how can we forgive like God? Because our forgiveness is relational, not judicial, our forgiveness is a volitional choice of how we will relate with a person. Right? So it's it's a volitional choice. When you say, I forgive you... We are not saying, this is how I feel about you. <laughs> you can be in deep pain because of that person's sin and still say, I forgive you. Uh, you can be angry and still say, I forgive you. Um, and this has, Forgiveness has nothing to do with how you feel. It is a choice, a volitional choice much like we would say love is not an emotion uh, love is a decision it's a, it's a choice same thing with forgiveness so what what are we saying, what is the choice well we're making four promises and these just correspond to the, the, the way that God has forgiven us the first promise that we're uh, saying when we forgive is I will not dwell on this incident I will not dwell on this incident right we can't promise that the situation won't cross our mind that there's we can't say nothing's ever going to remind me you know this is we're not saying i forget i'm going to forget this what we're saying is i'm going to choose to not actively think about this sin that you've committed against me when when it crosses my mind you know i'm standing there doing the dishes and just i'm thinking about nothing but then all of a sudden i'm remi- reminded for whatever reason of your sin or you know, I'm engaging with you and something that you say reminds me about what you did or, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm not going to capture that thought and say, hmm, let's, let's spend some time remembering that. Let's think about that. Let's relive that. I'm going to choose to not think about your sin. So the positive side is we are promising that when the incident comes to our mind, we will redirect our thoughts according to Philippians eight. You know, Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, honorable, right, just, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, dwell on these things. So I'm going to actively uh, redirect my mind and think about things that are true. I'm going I'm to remember that uh, God has brought about reconciliation. I'm going to thank God for you. I'm going to praise God for you. Uh, I'm going to think about how you're a blessing in my, you know, whatever. We're going to think about things that are consistent with biblical truth and not dwell on their sin. I promise, secondly, that I will not bring this incident up to you and use it against you. I'm not going to continually remind you of what you've done. Now, the assumption, by the time you get to the point of forgiveness, which I know we haven't talked about confrontation yet, but, but by the time we get to the point of granting forgiveness, uh, we should have fully dealt with the issue. Uh, And we'll talk about, uh, after this section, the attitudinal versus transactional forgiveness uh, in terms of uh, um, uh, do we actually have a verbal exchange of forgiveness, or is this just an attitude in my own heart? But when we say, when we do have that verbal exchange, we should have already gotten to the point where the person has repented, confessed their sin, and and so we know that, that they are aware of it, we know that they are seeking to, uh, to flee from it and, and to not repeat their sin. And so we're saying, I'm not going to bring this up to you and use it against you. If there is a need to bring up that, this sin again, and sometimes there is, it's not going to be for the purpose of bashing them over the head with, remember what you did? Rather, it's going to be for the purpose of ministering to them if we're concerned about a pattern that is ongoing. Uh, and we're going to do it in love and gentleness and grace. But we're not going to use it to use it against, or we're not going to bring it up to use it against them. Now, the third promise then is that I will not discuss this incident with others. All right? uh, now that we have dealt with this, you've confessed it, and now I'm promising to forgive you, uh, I'm not going to go around and talk to relatives. I'm not going to talk to a friend or a family member. I'm not going to bring this up to the small group. I'm not going to bring it up as a prayer request or let our accountability group know. It's, it's done. It's, it's settled. This is kind of the following the principle of Matthew 18 where Jesus says, if someone sins against you, go and show them their fault. And if they listen to you, you've won your brother. That's it. Nobody else needs to know that this has happened. Now, there are a couple exceptions. If the law has been broken, authorities may need to get involved. And we necessarily, obviously, have to talk to them about the situation. And so just, by the way, in in inserting that here, the obvious thing is forgiveness does not mean there's no consequences. If someone has so sinned against you that they violated either the law uh, or there's some other aspect of their sin that requires restitution or there's been a loss of trust, trust and forgiveness are not the same thing. We, we can forgive someone without uh, telling them that we're going to trust them right away. So, um, so there may be more consequences that come from the situation, from their sin. But uh, unless it's necessary, we're just saying we're not going to bring this up to others. Uh, another situation there is if uh, there are la- la- lasting consequences or we need outside help to fully resolve the situation or grow from it. Right? You might need to talk to a counselor or a pastor or someone who can help us grow and change. So you can promise to forgive, but still be wrestling in your soul with the effect of that sin, the hurt and the pain. Uh, and so you just need someone to minister to you. And so you necessarily have to talk about what's transpired. But again, you're not doing it for the purpose of bringing condemnation or you know, causing them to, to feel bad about themselves. Um, you, you're doing it for the purpose of, of healing And that's appropriate. So I I will not bring this incident up with others. Then the fourth promise is, I will not allow this incident to stand between us. I will not allow this incident to stand between us. The majority of conflicts that we have in our life, right? Those with our spouse, with our kids, with our coworkers, with people in the church, the vast majority of the sins that are committed against us or that we commit against others they do not create any kind of a lasting barrier of relationship. You, know, you deal with it, you confess it, you forgive it, it's done, you move on, you, you, you enjoy fellowship and unity, and you can serve together and all the rest. Um, however, there are some sins that have natural consequences that do create necessary barriers. Now, obviously, these are, these are significant. Significant acts of broken trust. May require a lengthy period of rebuilding trust, um, such as in adultery. You know, again, a wife or whoever is committing adultery, the husband, whoever is doing the forgiving, they can make the promises to forgive, but along with that, saying, "I don't trust you now. I, I can't trust you," and so I'm going to need to spend time, uh, or I'm going to need to, we're, we're going to need to work on rebuilding trust. You know, you're going to have to put forth effort. You're going to have to live a transparent life. Uh, and I'm going to need to you know, trust the Lord and give you opportunities to earn my trust again. Because trust and forgiveness are not the same thing. But, um, uh, so that, that's a kind of barrier, if you will, uh, that, that is created. Uh, or a significant harm, physical or sexual, may make it wise and necessary for complete separation. Right? There are situations where you just say, you know what, we can't be in the same building together. We can't be in the same home together. And I, I'll, I'll say, you know, there are extreme and ex- extraordinarily rare situations where God has the power to so bring healing in a situation where even that would not be a problem or that would not be necessary, but that's not the expectation. Many times, uh, it would be quite appropriate for there to be some kind of separation. And of course you know, using those examples, those are legal, those are criminal issues. So, if, the, if someone has committed that violation, not only have they violated trust and love and whatever, but they violated the law, and so it would be a manifestation of their own repentance, if they are repentant, that they are willing to accept the legal consequences for their sin, plead guilty, whatever, and experience the, the civil judicial punishment for that sin. But there might be other sins that are not criminal. Let's say, um, you know, there's a whole lot of wickedness that is not illegal according to the books uh, of our society. So there might be ways in which people so mistreat one another that uh, separation is appropriate and um, and not to be um, not to be what's the right word I'm thinking of. Um, uh, you know, people should, shouldn't cast uh, dispersion on that. And then also a failure of integrity may make it wise to continue to, uh, unwise to continue working relationships, such as firing someone who mishandled business finances. Um, I, I know a man uh, from another state who was the treasurer of a church. It turned out he had stolen money from the church over a period of time. I don't know if he was caught or if the Lord just finally convicted him, but he repented. Well, he was not the treasurer anymore, right? It would have been very unwise for them to continue to let him be in that position. I've worked in jobs where, or in companies where a financial person has, you know, made a mistake and uh, tried to, you know, do creative accounting things (laughs) to cover up their mistake. They're not trying to personally benefit from it. They're not embezzling. But they're doing unethical things to try and cover up a mistake. Uh, so I, I, I know someone that you know I, I used to work with that, where that happened, and like years down the line, when that, that came to be revealed, uh, he hadn't sinned again in the sense of embezzling funds. But uh, it was clear that uh, he couldn't continue in that role. That was that was just not wise. So so there are some sins where. There needs to be consequences of separation, of division, of a barrier, you know, things like that. But uh, that is not the case for the 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 run-of-the-mill sins, if you will, that we typically commit against each other. In most cases, there can be a fully restored and even strengthened relationship. In some cases, the relationship may be altered temporarily or even permanently. And again, in a few extreme cases, the relationship may need to be completely severed. I remember when I was in high school, um, I had uh, my youth group circle of friends. I and that overlapped with my work uh, circle of friends because we many of my youth group friends and I worked at a Christian conference center in the dining room. And but there was one friend that was not part of the youth group, and she and I were friends, uh, and um, you know we enjoyed working together. But she. Uh, she had grown up in a very sheltered environment, shall we say. And there was a lot of things in the world that she was completely oblivious to. You know, didn't know certain a lot of celebrities. Just There's a lot of things that she just had no clue on. Nothing that was a matter of sin. Nothing that was a matter of immaturity. She was just innocent in the ways and the ways in the things of the world. And, you know... I thought that was kind of funny because I'm an immature teenager, and um, so in youth group I would talk to my youth group friends about, oh, I have this friend at work, and you know she doesn't know who so and so is, ha, ha ha ha, you know, and so I would speak disparagingly about her, and one day, lo and behold, the groups overlapped, and she came to youth group, <laughs> you know, so now we have like complete overlap in friends, and uh, at some point along the way. My friends said to her, "Did you know that Gabe, you know, has said these things about you?" <laughs> and so she called me one day. I can I can picture in my mind where I was uh, under the the uh, the porch in our back uh, of the house, uh, sitting on a swinging bench, talking to her on the phone, and she's saying, uh, "You know." I'm hearing that you've been saying these things about me, you know, whatever. And she's like, "Is that is that true?" And man, the Lord convicted me so powerfully in that moment. And uh, so I said, "Yes, it's true." You know, I, I'm I'm so sorry. That's I don't remember all of what I said, but you know, it just took full responsibility and I asked for her forgiveness. And she granted me forgiveness. And I think our friendship actually improved after that. Um, she threw a surprise birthday party for me in that next year at her house. And, you know, we were just good friends. And so I've always remembered that as one of a number of situations where when you humble yourselves, both as a person who has sinned against and the person who has sinned, and you are able to reconcile, your relationship can get stronger because you've weathered a storm. And that's, I think, how God would have us to relate uh, in most situations. So those are the four promises of forgiveness. I, I won't bring this up to myself. <clears throat> I'm not going to dwell on this incident. I'm not going to bring it up to you to use it against you. I'm not going to talk to others about this. And I'm not going to allow this to stand between us. Okay? Those are the promises that we're making. Now, those are not statements that we make and we move on. Those are uh, decisions that we have to live by day by day by day by day even if that person continues to sin against us. Right. Jesus said in Luke, somewhere in Luke, if your brother sins against you seven times a day, and seven times a day he says to you, I repent, you must forgive him. I think he's, that, that's a potential scenario, but I think there's there's a, a, a an exaggeration of sorts. But he's making the point, you forgive and you forgive, and you forgive and you forgive. Now, again, there's there's wisdom in, all right, maybe we need to change the dynamic of our relationship. <laughs> maybe there's a pattern that needs to be dealt with. So it's it's not that you become a carpet, you let people walk all over you. You know, there, There's wisdom principles in, in how to re, uh, deal with an ongoing pattern of, of sin. But our disposition should be, I, I want to forgive and I'm going to... Uh, live out these promises day by day by day okay let me pause there and see if there are any thoughts or questions if you're in a situation where that last one applies where you have to completely sever that relationship because maintaining it means physical and medical harm to someone does it make you a bad Christian if you will not Try for biblical reconciliation that just completely loving <clears throat> it and not open to biblical reconciliation? Yeah. Let me answer that in two parts. First part, I want to say um, I would prefer not to think in terms of bad Christian or good Christian. Um, because that I think can cause us to think in in terms of, man, God's going to be mad at me. You know, I'm going to have a bad relationship with God if I don't do everything he says. And I want to affirm again that when God forgives us, he forgives us, and our sin is far, uh, cast far away. And we are righteous in Christ, and there is complete reconciliation. So um, so there really is no such thing as a bad Christian. Now, there might be an unfaithful Christian, uh, or one who's living inconsistently, but I, I just I don't think it's helpful to use the word bad. And so I just want to I want to say that more in an encouraging way to say, man, if, if we're trusting the Lord, if we're walking with the Lord, if we're confessing our sin, we're righteous in Christ. We're loved by the Father, and you know we're we're one with Him, and, and we can have a, a good relationship with Him. In those situations where there's you know significant harm. Um. The, uh, I think wisdom would dictate that the approach to reconciliation uh, is, in, is dependent on the situation. So where there is significant harm uh, that's taking place, um, once there's been a clear, whatever shape it takes, but a clear rebuke or confrontation of this isn't right, this isn't good, and the person is not responding to that, you're not in a point of reconciliation at that point. Uh, You're in a point of need to protect the vulnerable, protect the the innocent. Uh, And um, until that person comes to a point of repentance, uh, there's not reconciliation that's possible. I was kind of thinking through that as I was talking. Is that helpful? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, again, whatever shape it takes... there there should be or can be some kind of way of communicating uh there's you've committed a wrong you've violated trust you've sinned you've harmed you know however we express what's taken place uh we cannot continue in this relationship until you uh acknowledge that confess that repent of that um that you know um that can happen in a, just a personal confrontation, it can happen in, in writing, um, but it, if, if there's an ongoing pattern of uh, abuse or mistreatment, um, and you know, even if it's as simple as stop, <laughs> and that's the confrontation, stop, <laughs> and they know they're, they're going against you know, the relationship, I, I think that is sufficient. Uh, a sufficient effort in in many ways uh, with someone who is perpetrating sin. There's, these are complex things, so I'm giving short answers. But um, what I what I what I'm trying to say, I guess, is if you're on the receiving end or someone you know you're you're protecting someone who's on the receiving end of harm or sin continually. Uh, what we're talking about right now. Uh, the priority is protection the priority is um, you know get uh, get the situation in a place where there's no ongoing harm taking place Uh, forgiveness is something that can be dealt with later uh, so forth okay Well, let's talk about attitudinal versus transactional forgiveness what if the person doesn't ask for forgiveness am I still supposed to forgive them uh I think this, there, there's a measure of relationship to this with what we were just talking about with those questions. Um, but um, I would just encourage you, and, and if you need to ask you know, when we get to it, but I would still say um, some of this, uh, if there's ongoing harm, we're not yet talking about forgiveness issues, okay? So if there's ongoing harm or a lack of repentance, um, well, we can talk, talk through it. Uh, so there's some measure of debate on this question uh, in terms of should I forgive no matter what? Or do I only forgive when they ask for forgiveness? And I think the biblical approach would be to view forgiveness in two senses, attitudinal and transactional. You could say vertical, uh, which is really more about you and your relationship to God. That's the attitudinal forgiveness. Or horizontal, the relationship between you and the other person. Transactional or horizontal forgiveness is when a person has sinned against us, they confess their sin, ask for forgiveness, and we grant forgiveness by making the four promises. Right? So that's horizontal, our relationship with another person. Uh, this is the kind of forgiveness we see in Matthew 18, that when we confront someone, they listen, we forgive them. Uh, and then Jesus you know, used that illustration of the, the unforgiving servant. Uh, we are called to forgive. I think it's Luke seventeen three to 5, the, you know, if they sin against you seven times a day, um, forgive. Uh, when someone asks for forgiveness, when someone repents of their sin, we're called to express forgiveness uh, in, in those situations. And again, it's as those who've received infinite forgiveness from God, our Father, we extend forgiveness to those who repent and ask for it. And so this is so critical that Jesus says in Matthew six fourteen, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And he essentially says the same thing at the end of Matthew 18. If someone asks for your forgiveness and you say, no, I will not forgive which, by the way, is different than saying, I need time, I need to process. But if you're hard-hearted and you say, I will not forgive, I don't care how sorry you are, I don't care what you say, there's nothing that you can do or say that would bring me to the point of forgiveness. What Jesus is saying is, you will not be forgiven. And there's, there's two potential ways to interpret that. One is, you have not received forgiveness, you're demonstrating that you have not experienced forgiveness in your life, And therefore you're living out your unbelief and therefore you're not saved. The other option is that he's referring to kind of more relational forgiveness from God in that, okay, in this moment you're sinning by not forgiving. Uh, And so God's not going to relationally forgive you if you're like, I'm not going to forgive this person, but God forgive me for my sin. You know, the, the sins that I commit today. Um, but the, the assumption would be that at some point he would sanctify you and work in your heart to bring you to the place of forgiveness. You know, you could take that those two different ways. So it's critical that we forgive. God commands us to forgive. Uh, we've been forgiven infinitely, and so we must forgive when someone asks. But what do you do when, uh, until the person asks, or if the person never asks? Well, I only know of two options, and if you can think of any other options, you let me know. Uh, But the two options I can think of is you either uh, move toward bitterness, you grow a, a root of bitterness in your heart by holding on to their offense, or you have an attitude, you cultivate attitude forgiveness in your heart. So transactional forgiveness is between you and the other person. Attitudinal forgiveness is between you and the Lord, and we, we see this. Uh, I think in Matthew eleven twenty five, when Jesus <laughs> says, "Excuse me, Mark, whenever you stand for, uh, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions." So this is a situation where you are really by yourself, even if you're by yourself in a crowd, but you're by yourself, and it's, you're just having a conversation with the Lord. You're praying in your heart. You're praying in your mind and you remember that you have something against someone, that someone has sinned against you, Jesus says, while you're talking to the Father, forgive. Forgive. And I take this to be what Jesus modeled when he was hanging on the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know it not what they do. Clearly, no one was asking Jesus for forgiveness in that moment. And Jesus was not talking to them who were sinning against him. He was talking to the Father. And so there's a an attitude of forgiveness in the heart. In Matthew 18, Jesus emphasizes the heart uh, level of forgiveness when he says, My Father will also do the same to you if, uh, if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. So there's a heart level uh, forgiveness that... Um, really takes place before and below our transactional forgiveness with others so what does this look like uh, we forgive others in our hearts in four ways we remember first of all that while they may have sinned toward us and hurt us they have primarily sinned, sinned against god who will in his own way and at his time exact justice and so we entrust ourselves and that the other person to the lord and this is what Joseph did in Genesis 50. When his brothers came to him, they were fearful that you know, now that he's in power, now that his dad was dead, that he was going to exact vengeance and punish them because they had sold him into slavery. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? We don't have time to trace back the story of Joseph, but if you just think about it on your own time, think about all the ways in which Joseph suffered, and all of it was rooted in that moment where his brother sold him into slavery. And he had years and years and years where he could have cultivated bitterness. Man, wait till I see them again. <laughs> what am I going to do? And being the second in command in Egypt, he probably had power to do all kinds of terrible things. But instead, he cultivated this attitude that, that said, I'm not the judge. I'm not the judge. God is the judge. Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We have to remember that that's God's place. Vengeance belongs to Him. Or uh, James 4 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And we might be able to say, I'm the one they sinned against. That's who I am. (laughs) I heard what they said. I felt what they did. Or I saw what they did or whatever. Um, And, you know, there's a, a measure of things that we could say were true about their sin where we could rightly judge. But God alone knows their heart. God alone knows the full context of everything that we're oblivious to. And so he is the one who is to judge. And we're not the judge of our neighbor. And Jesus did this in, uh, on the cross, uh, and as he suffered in 1 Peter two twenty three, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So, not only was he praying, "Father, forgive them," but he was trusting himself. Right, and ultimately he said, "Into your hands I commit my spirit. I entrust myself to you, Father." Uh, And so he was trusting in God for his own life and for the the life of others. So that's one of the things that we do when we uh, forgive in the heart. We remember, we entrust the person and ourselves to the Lord. We also remember that we're called not to become bitter toward others, so we choose not to cultivate sinful attitudes toward that person. Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Hebrews 12, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes troubles, uh, trouble, and by it many be defiled. Right. So bitterness is a root, and it produces all kinds of terrible fruit. And so we need to be careful that it not spring up in our hearts. Third, we remember that God is that just as God forgives us, us instantly when we ask because our sin has been paid for by Christ, we too must be ready to make the four promises of forgiveness and reconcile with them when the person repents. So one of the things that we're aiming to do with this attitude of forgiveness is prepare ourselves for when the other person asks for forgiveness so that when they do, Lord willing, uh, instead of saying, think about this I don't know I'm, I'm hurting I'm, I'm just not ready which that's that's a legitimate response if that's where you're at but you can you can get there or you can get past that even before they ask for forgiveness by cultivating a forgiving attitude in your own heart and again I think that's what we see Joseph doing there in Genesis 50 I'm not going to read that whole section for the sake, the sake of time or in Luke 15 would be another example where, uh, you know, the son had uh, taken his, his inheritance, gone wasted it, and uh, he came back. And so even though he had seriously offended his father, seriously brought shame to the family, uh, when the father saw the son coming from a far distance, uh, he could have had this attitude of, if I ever see my son again, I'm going to kill him, <laughs> right? I'm not going to let him come to the house. He's brought shame to our family. We're going to cast him out. Stone him, whatever. Instead, when he saw his son far out, he had so cultivated a heart of love and compassion for his son that he didn't need to think about it. He just got up and ran and celebrated the return of his son. A fourth thing that we do is we must pray, bless, and do good to them. Matthew 5.44 But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Romans 12, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, we can engage in relationship with them or we can act toward them in a way that is kind and loving and gracious and beneficial. In a way that they are taken aback. Right? The, the world uh, does not respond to offenses, to being sinned against by you know, showing kindness in return. Right? It's revenge uh, or bust. <laughs> uh, it's, or it's cutting off the relationship. I want nothing to do with you. you know, you're toxic. You never talk to me again. And because of our sinful nature, we often think, man, if I could just give them a piece of my mind, if I could just tell them how much they've hurt me, if I can just make them feel the pain that I feel, then they'll recognize how much they've you know, violated and you know, how wrong they are. But God says, no, 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 I have something far more powerful in this situation. I have a tool, a weapon, that will enable you to bring conviction and cause them to think about themselves far more than what you're tempted to do and that is pray for them if there's a way that you can meet a need that they have, meet it if there's a word of blessing you can give to them give it send them a card tell them you're grateful for them tell them you're praying for God's blessing on their life celebrate the, the things that God is doing in their life that are good hey, I heard you got a promotion yeah. I'm really encouraged by that you work hard, I'm grateful for what you do Uh, find ways to bless them, encourage them, uh, shower them with kindness, and see how God might use that to bring them to repentance. We're out of time. Uh, We could keep going. Obviously, we're out of notes, but... um, (laughs) But I teach a class, as many of you know, the Gospel for Life, where we get into a lot more on the topic of forgiveness, So, so some other day. Let me pray.